Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. So Dean Finholt, thank you so much for joining me today. Would you please go ahead and formally introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Tom Finholt, uh, Dean of the School of Information, also Professor of Information. Fantastic. And as you know, I'm Nikki Sundstrom, the University of Michigan's Director of Social Media and Public Engagement. Um, and I'm hoping we can cover an array of different topics today. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, you played a leading role on the Coordinating Committee for Instruction Planning this summer. Can you share any details about that work that went into preparing us for a hybrid semester? And then maybe share how you feel it has gone so far and maybe what's still evolving. First of all, that committee was chaired by my colleague, Elizabeth Moji. So she she did the heavy lifting and herding the cats. Uh, I was just one of the, one of the individual contributors. Um, so, I mean, that committee really had two principal responsibilities. One was to advise the, the provost and the campus about uh, the structure of the academic calendar. And then the second was to advise the, the provost and the campus about how to conduct instruction under some of the constraints and accommodations that we anticipated through the, through the coming school year. And a lot of that had to do with um, the reconfiguration of classroom to, uh, to create uh, adequate spacing and uh, complicated choreography of in-person instruction with, uh, with virtual instruction. So among the things we did was we completed an inventory of the, the teaching spaces on campus and were able to figure out uh, classes of a certain size probably couldn't be supported in person. I think that's what led to the to the 50 person uh, cutoff. We uh, actually did a few test instructional settings over in the School of Ed. So Dean Moji became Professor Moji and ran the, the class for us. And uh, we had uh, a group of students assembled in front of her and we had a group assembled uh, online and we tried it in uh, in an advanced technology classroom and in a more conventional classroom and discovered a lot of things that the, that the orchestration of the, of the virtual and the in-person in simultaneous session is, is quite, quite complicated. And I think those were the, the major accomplishments that, you know, end at Thanksgiving was a big, uh, was a big decision. Um, this was what we ended up with was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty largely in agreement with what our recommendation looked like. Can you share now that we are three weeks into the fall hybrid semester, um, any success stories or testimonials that you've heard from faculty or students um, regarding both in-person and virtual um, learning? Most students' experience is, is virtual because mm -hmm. I think uh, Provost Collins just told us 78% of the, of the credit hours are, uh, are online this fall. Having made that observation, I think uh, what I'm hearing from students is they, uh, they, they benefit in many cases from uh, asynchronous styles of instruction. So being able to uh, liberate themselves from the anchor of, uh, of scheduled lectures and to play them back on, on their time. And then I think the other thing that is, is notable is the, the faculty in, in a lot of cases have embraced this role of producer, director, uh, cinematographer, set designer, 
and uh, and whatever, and it really upped their their production game. So, so I think those things are are interesting. Chuck Severance on our faculty has a has a great video of his home production setup. It it sets a high bar, but it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, he sets a very high bar. But you know, in, in, in at least in our unit, we bought. Um, I think three or four turret systems to set up for uh, low-level production, and we made some investments in in high-end production and you know acoustic isolation of some rooms that were too small to be used for anything else. So I think those are those are beneficial outcomes. Fantastic. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet of a nice ring light at your home studio as well. Is that correct? Yes, that is what we're benefiting from <laughs> right here. Otherwise, I would be a kind of a pale yellow alien creature. With 78% approximately of our fall instruction being delivered online or remote this fall, where have you really seen the prominence and reliance on online platforms evolve throughout quarantine? Well, obviously, uh, Zoom is now a ubiquitous platform, and people are are deeply familiar with its uh, capabilities, which are pretty numerous. And um, uh, our CIO was very excited to call me up over the summer and say, oh, we've got, you know, uh, on-the-fly transcription is working now. <laughs> and so we had a 10-minute conversation where we looked at our words appearing as we were speaking them. And over my lifespan, that that seems like science fiction. You know, Tim McKay, the uh, associate dean in LSA, has been fond of pointing out that these uh, virtual modalities level the playing field for many of our students who are historically excluded, especially students with, with disabilities, so visual impairments or, uh, or physical impairments that wouldn't have allowed them to navigate campus or wouldn't allow them to have engaged as fully, say, without their uh, array of, of support systems. So I think that's a, that's a net win. Um, I, I'm hearing from many faculty that, uh, that teaching over Zoom has increased engagement. So um, it, it could be that, uh, you know, the effort of getting oneself out of bed and feeding oneself and walking across the diag to go to class is uh, is is an impediment, and when one can just roll out of bed and flip up the laptop and and be in lecture, that may that may be a good thing for um, for some people. But we are, we are seeing higher engagement with our programming um, faculty meetings. I don't think I've ever seen so many people attending faculty meetings before. I mean, we're having. 80, 90% of our faculty at every meeting, that would never have happened face-to-face. -face. I know that um, my three-year-old currently walks around saying she has a Zoom meeting soon. So, you know, it's certainly integrated into all of our family vernacular and societal vernacular, really. Yeah. Um, so talking about online influence and just the evolution of things that we've experienced since, you know, March at this point, throughout COVID, we've seen a number of new issues and a approaches arise related to information dissemination, fact-checking, and data collection in social media. So with so many now online, both for work and learning, what potential risks and opportunities do you see? These uh, social media keep institutional actors honest. So it creates a, a megaphone or a bully pulpit for ordinary citizens to, to call things out if they find them problematic. The angry customer who tweets out his or her grievance to the corporate powers that be and, you know, provokes an instantaneous response. And, uh, and you know, I think that's a, that's a good thing. We're seeing that on our campus with the, 
you know, the TikTok videos of the, the experience of quarantine, I think gets the administration's attention faster than whatever 700,000 views. Um, so, uh, so I think that's a, that's a net win. Um, you know, the risk is that uh, social media is flat. The message from the esteemed world expert and the message from the cranky guy who lives next door in his mom's basement, they appear as the same thing. And, and can, you know, depending on the content of the message and the way it's spun, that uh, the, the non-experts commentary could be more viral than the, than the experts commentary. So there are plenty of indicators about what is a, a credible print source, you know, the, the, the brand name, we see the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or London Times across the top. We, we have editors and reporters and they have learned uh, norms and practices around uh, objectivity and, uh, and completeness that are not true of random citizens who are sometimes spewing out complete nonsense. So I think that's the biggest problem is we can't really we don't really have the markers of uh, of credibility and and authenticity that that we that we need at this point. You hit on one one of my favorite analogies about where somebody might be sitting while they're tweeting and how the weight of a singular tweet really is so flat across the internet um, that anybody can be an instantaneous celebrity or influencer. Okay. Um, so speaking specifically right about that, recently the New York Times published an article about social media shame of higher education institutions, particularly in light of the pandemic and around reopening plans or experiences. You mentioned uh, TikTok on our campus and, and quarantine slash isolation housing. So as home, um, the uh, U of M Social Center for Social Media Responsibility. So from that lens, putting on kind of where we're at, and where that might be going, or what institutions can do to be more receptive. I think the, the, the big risk is that the, the, the loudest or the most um, uh, adaptive, sort of viral adaptive voice is the one that gets heard. And in some cases, that voice might be the most representative, but in other cases, it could be completely wacky. So, um, you know, I did a little bit of of reality checking on some of the stuff that I was seeing coming out of our quarantine housing. I had at least one student who told me that his friend was quarantined there and his friend thought that quarantine housing was like a thousand percent upgrade over his regular situation. So, and then of course we both acknowledged we didn't really know what the regular situation was, but uh, it's it can be in the eye of the beholder. And uh, I don't think social media rewards representative views necessarily. I think it revor rewards the, um, the most attention grabbing or the most sensational or the most, the most viral. And, um, you know, we could have had 36 boring videos about the my luxury accommodation. And then there would be the one where the, the, the one ply toilet paper is, uh, is displayed. And that's the one that it gets the, the big picture. And that's just kind of the nature of social media, I think, but it's something we need to watch out for. In our time on campus together, we've connected on a multitude of different issues that have spawned up in social media. And I think one of the most challenging things for my team has always been that whatever gets the initial attention grab, despite um, whether or not it's factual or misinformation, the response never quite gets the same 
same, you know, media pickup, which is always really challenging. Um, makes my job very interesting, I guess. But so on that same note, social media has played a really unique role in advocating for change since its inception. Um, how do you feel that the pandemic and an election year is uniquely influencing user behavior and potentially evolving the tone of online conversations? There's a professor in CSE who did a year-over-year -year comparison of the uh, emotional valence of, uh, of tweets and found that uh, in the pandemic period, there was greater positivity and greater use of words like together and, you know, us and all of us uh, relative to the, to the non-pandemic time. So I, you know, that kind of um, unpredictable or contrary result is, is really this, the stuff of, uh, of, great, of great research and great news stories. Uh, I mean, within this, the Center for Social Media Responsibility, they've been running their analysis of uh, dis dissemination of dubious URLs for over two years now. And, and the overall trend has been downward. So um, we don't really know why it's downward. It could be some combination of increasing sophistication of users. They have become savvier about attempts to manipulate their attention. It could be that the platforms are introducing uh, algorithmic and other policy changes that are having having some consequences. Of course, why we founded the center was to be able to address open questions like that empirically and with uh, with kind of sound uh, research practice. So you know they're making progress, um, but I, I find it heartening that to, to think of those two results because there's so much um, dark matter about the the social media universe um, that there that there are occasionally silver linings. Absolutely. Yes, there is certainly a dichotomy between working in social, studying social, and participating in social, right? And yeah. you have to try to somehow navigate between the three and treat them all um, differently. So I'll ask this question then, outside of education and work, what other needs are we seeing technology fill when it comes to reimagining social experiences? So in-person gatherings, festivals, live performances. What are some of the best innovations that you think have come or are yet to come? I'm very interested in what uh, Epic is doing with the, the Fortnite platform as, uh, as a venue for um, a collective experience. Uh, early, it's been around musical performances. Um, I don't think those have been live necessarily, although I was reading that they have they have set up a, a studio for live performances. So I think I think that's very uh, interesting. I know, um, and and we've been talking with presenters in in Ann Arbor about uh, creating virtual venues that would mimic, say, Hill or the Power Center or Rackham, uh, and then talk with some uh, cooperative artists who would be willing to. Uh, suspend their uh, digital rights to, uh, to because once you perform it live online, it's, it's now everywhere. Um, I think there's a lot that could be done in the domain of sports events programming that would take advantage of, uh, you know, augmented reality experiences. Um, I don't, I don't think anyone's been very imaginative about that so far, probably because the the in-stadium experience has been so dominant, but we might not have the in-stadium experience with us um, anytime, anytime soon. And so uh, I'm interested in, 
in the shared augmented reality experience. And I'm, I'm sure that that's something that our friends at ESPN and Disney and, and whatever are also very concerned with. Absolutely. It'll be another uh, phenomenal industry for our friends at Facebook, right? So yes. They already yeah. have that underneath their umbrella as well. One of the biggest platform success stories I think that's emerged during COVID has obviously been TikTok. Um, we talked a little bit about it earlier. So I'm going to ask the million dollar question that's on everybody's minds right now. Um, who do you think is going to buy it? Um, and then second, what do you think that the potential rep repercussions of this type of acquisition will be? Because I'm extremely intrigued by this. Yeah. Well, it looks like Oracle is the leader right now. Um, I think Microsoft has largely failed and I'm not, I don't know, I haven't followed it closely enough to know who the other likely players might be. You know, TikTok is such a peculiar platform. My understanding is it has all kinds of creepy things under the hood. Anyone acquiring it is going to have to address that. Um, the concerns that it's some um, kind of direct conduit back to the PLA intelligence operations and, you know, that foreign nationals are collecting all kinds of intimate details about our, our daily lives. My uh, my son was unpacking it the other day and telling me all of the stuff that's in there that is just bizarre. I mean, there's uh, there's stuff for unzipping compressed files and all you know all kinds of other stuff that you wouldn't expect to find in a in an app like that. So, um, so I think the the acquisition winner is going to have to address that that suspicion, and they, and I think they're going to have to find some uh, way of broadening the base of users. Um, but I mean, certainly the algorithm is incredible. So it, it could be a very lucrative platform, but I think they have to address these concerns about uh, where, where the data are going before you get broader, broader acceptance. But yeah, definitely the breakout technology of the pandemic period. I recall last fall, um, one of the UMSI students joined me for a, a panel discussion that we did at a local high school. Um, and I believe at the time he was describing the research around uh, TikTok when you begin to scroll actually takes away the time, the clock at the top of your screen. Yeah, right. And I just, I remember the high schoolers eyes just going, wait, really? And then the, they all kind of got out their phone and started scrolling themselves. So, you know, it's those small things that make the research that UMSI does so vitally important, right? They can help inform behavior and then also platforms to make good conscientious decisions as it relates to the betterment of our communities. Yeah, um, particularly when we think about what might happen this fall and all of the documentaries that we saw following the last election about the role of social media and the information that was being collected and how ads were being targeted. Um, a lot of large businesses are still participating in the Facebook boycott. Um, and that was something that we didn't experience previously. So talk to me a little bit about maybe the research that UMSI is doing in relation to data privacy or, you know, anything that you see on the horizon as it relates to social media and what might happen with data privacy concerns. The, the school's um, take on, on privacy is typically one oriented around the, the user's experience of, uh, of privacy provisions and, and protections, which is, um, you know, as you know, when you download a new app, it's like, uh-huh, check, let's go. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you've just agreed to 500 things that if you sat down and thought about them, would be, would be terrifying. Um, so. 
this is work that uh, Florian Schaub has been involved with uh, principally and, and looking at how uh, privacy policy can be surfaced in a way that users uh, will make informed decisions and want to make informed decisions rather than just, you know, blasting through to get to the to the service or, or, or to the content. Um, and I think uh, part of that is uh, is enabling legislation that builds in some protections automatically that are not necessarily present. I think there's a higher, much higher sensitivity to this in the European Union than there is in the United States. And um, there's model legislation moving forward in the state of California, that it's the same thing. California is so big, it's gonna influence a lot of, uh, of decision-making for, for the entire country that, you know, are, are basically predicated on assumptions of uh, opt-in on collection. Um, and there are other schemes about uh, monetizing your your data so you can make decisions about, you know, giving giving certain information away, but you get some monetary value. I mean, the genius of Facebook is they, they pirated all of this critical data away from us for, for nothing. Um, and, you know, shame on us. So if you post a status on Facebook saying that they can't use your photos, that's not going to get you anywhere, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always laugh and use that as the example of why uh, the UMSI Center for Social Media Responsibility and Professor Cliff Lampy and I started to talk about the Social Integrity Project, right? Socialintegrity.umich.edu. Um, I like to tell people that I created it so my grandma knows that she's not getting free Spirit Airline tickets by sharing, you know, that status. But yes. with, <laughs> with that in mind, what um, words of wisdom do you have for people leveraging, you know, the internet during all hours of the day right now, both professionally and personally, um, to to keep themselves safe and, and informed? So um, why well, I fall back on advice that my mom liked, which was that uh, fools' names and fools' faces are often seen in public places, and to me that is uh, a message that says less is more. Um, one, I mean, I've, I grew up in the Midwest, so I have these Midwestern uh, ideas about uh, notoriety and uh, invisibility. It's like, if I don't need to be heard or seen, why should I be? But that is not very consistent with a lot of thinking in the, in the social media era. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's always good to, to think 10 times before you post something and, um, and then wonder, is this what I want a future job interviewer, a future voter, a future prospective student or spouse? Do I want them to see this about me? You know, and it'll come back 10 years from now. It happens all the time that we, we surface these ugly things that people might have said in jest or in passing that, um, that are, are just, it's almost like we all need like a 30 second delay on um, in social media. In terms of the times that we live in, I, man, you just have to turn it off at some point. And uh, I am, am now in month four of my Twitter vacation because, <gasps> you know, know. not uh, just not doing it for me. And, you know, you, you can benefit from herd immunity to some extent. <laughs> if it's really important or actionable, someone else is going to see it and, and forward right. it to you. So, um, so I think, you know, our, our lives are not determined by the by the tempo and uh, comings and goings of social media, even though it might seem that way. And uh, occasionally you just need to put the phone down and plug it and 
take the dog for a walk because the dog definitely doesn't like it when you're doing social media while we're on the walk so that's right but your followers would want to see your dog so, yeah they would want to you know, see it's the always yeah. it's a double-edged sword i know exactly well i think those are very wise words i think all of us could use probably a, a mental health break from the overwhelming nature of social media at this point or, or technology or just kind of the exhaustion of, of being on zoom calls all day long in order to get our work done so it's an excellent reminder um and with that i will formally end our conversation it was right. always a pleasure as usual to speak with you so thank you so much thank you it's lovely enjoy myself thank you <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.